Hello, listeners. I'm Laurel McCarg, host of the Alligator Preserves podcast. On the 19th of November, I interviewed my Israeli friend, Miriam Green, about her experiences of living in Israel on the 7th of October, the day Hamas attacked. What you are going to hear now is an unedited version of our visit. Normally, I would have a perky little intro and a perky little outro, but this particular interview does not warrant such perkiness. I have a content warning for you that some of what Miriam discusses about what happened on that day and what she subsequently learned is, uh, to say the least, disturbing, disturbing to listen to. So I just wanted to say that right up front. This is unedited. I have not removed any of the ums or ahs or long pauses because I believe the entire audio of our visit deserves to be heard in full. So without further ado, this is what we discussed. Hi, Miriam. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I want to tell you all out there listening that uh, I met Miriam a little over four years ago when I first interviewed her. She had written a book called The Lost Kitchen, Reflections and Recipes from an Alzheimer's Caregiver. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, let me just give you a little background about my friend Miriam, whom I've never met in person, just just over Zoom which thank God we can still do this, right? You were born in London, but you grew up in Bethesda. You went to college in Ohio at Oberlin. You met your husband in DC, and then the two of you decided to live in Israel. And you've been there for 33-ish years now? Yeah, almost. Uh, 32, I think, yeah. 32 years. So this might be one of my more difficult interviews and visits because of what's happening right now in your world, right? So I would like to start with um, what what have you done today? What what has today looked like for you? Uh, So today I had a little bit of work uh, and I'm a freelancer, so I work from my home. And then this evening, um, my monthly poetry group met. We're part of an organization called Voices Israel people who are writing English in English in Israel. And one of our members is a woman named Judy uh, um, Weinstein Hagai, and she lives on kibbutz near Oz. And that was one of the kibbutzim that was the hardest hit on October 7th by Hamas terrorists. And she and her husband are presumed to be in captivity. So this was a very bittersweet meeting. She wasn't there. Her beautiful, beautiful smile wasn't there. She is a gentle woman who loves haiku. And we read haiku on, in her honor and read some poetry, uh, that some of us in the group had written, um, mainly using Judy is a catalyst for our for writing our feelings, um, and it was it was very emotional. Uh, and we hope and pray that when we next meet in December, she will be with us because that's where she should be. Do you, Do you have any of the poems with you? I I didn't ask ahead uh, of time. I, <laughs> I do. 
Um, I do actually, and I can I can read you one of Judy's. Um, I can read you one of Judy's, please. It's called, yeah, it's called um, it's called Who's Awake. And this again is by Judy Weinstein Hagai. Who's awake? Who's awake writing poetry? Who's shouting the unspeakable? Who's ramming sound into silence? Who's pushing past decibels? Who's wailing into deafness? Who's sweating through nightmares? Who's embracing emptiness? Who's reaching for camaraderie? Who's alive in the maelstrom? This was not written recently, but but wow. poetry has a tendency to change and transform when it's up against events. And I really feel like this poem speaks to where we are now and uh, how we're feeling here in Israel. <clears throat> yes. And you mentioned poetry in... What is incredibly unique about your book, The Lost Kitchen, is that it is its prose, its poetry, and its recipes. Um, I'll have a link to the interview that I did with you back in uh, July of 2019, I believe, and um, <laughs> where you you go into a lot of what you wrote in here. And uh, the most unique book I've read in a, in a long time. So. I, I am sorry for your friend. You and I are both mothers of sons in uniform, right? Yes. Can you tell me what happened to your family on October 7th? Yes. Uh, so let me see if I can set the scene. It was Shabbat, and it was also uh, the last holiday in a month of Jewish holidays the holiday of Simchat Torah, the um, sort of the giving of the, the five books of Moses. We read the last chapter in the scroll. We scroll it all the way to the end. And then we read the first chapter of Genesis, meaning we scroll all the way back to the beginning. And it is a marvelous, joyous holiday. And as an observant Jew, I uh, I cut myself. I, I I I don't use electricity. I we have our lights on a timer. We have um, a, a hot plate that comes on to warm our food on Shabbat. I don't turn any uh, knobs. I don't turn any lights on. I uh, don't use my phone or my computer. Uh, the day is very much oriented to family to praying in synagogue and to eating lavish meals with the family and guests. And so there we were, it was Shabbat. Uh, I have a phone that I keep on because my father lives close to me and in the past he has needed me. And if he needs me, he will call and I will answer. That is the uh, unspoken word between us that if I see the phone ringing and it is my father, I will always answer because he might need my help. Yeah. 
So, so it's Shabbat. Um, and let me just talk a little bit about Israel. Israel is probably about the size of New Jersey. Okay. And we have a population of about nine and a half million people. Uh, I live in Beersheba, which is both the biblical home of Abraham and the modern capital of the Negev Desert. And we are about 30 miles from the border with Gaza. Not a long way. No. For years and years, we have had occasional rockets launched at our city by Hamas terrorists who live in Gaza uh, and have openly stated that they want to destroy Israel. And we've complacently lived with that, that threat. We have built... Uh, a lot of houses have a, a a a room in in their in their houses. We have a, a room like this that we recently built, which is it reinforced concrete, and it is so thick on the walls and the ceilings that uh, a rocket launched from Gaza, if it hit, would we would be protected inside it. So for years. We have known that when we hear the siren, we go into our safe room, we close the door, we wait, we hear the booms, and we wait 10 minutes because sometimes there's falling shrapnel, and we want to avoid being hit. And so this Saturday at about 6.30 in the morning, the sirens went off, and we all went into the safe room. The light was not on because we did not expect to be using the safe room. You shut the door. It is completely dark because the windows are closed. The, there's a reinforced steel window and the door is also reinforced steel. And uh, we sat there. And then there was another siren and another siren. And my phone started ringing. So when I came out of the safe room, I saw that it was my daughter in L.A. My daughter knows not to call me on Shabbat. But she was calling and calling and calling. I sent her a message. I said, we're fine. And she kept calling. And I finally picked up the phone and she said, stay inside and lock your doors. And even then, we didn't understand the full scope of what had happened or what was happening then at that time on the 22 uh, or so small villages and towns along the border. So we knew something was wrong. The rockets keep coming. My daughter says, stay at home. Um, and, you know... We, we weren't exactly sure what we were supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the, the next thing that happened, we, we, we later learned that, terror, that more than 3,000 terrorists had come through the border, a border that we, I guess, with hubris, thought was in, defensible because we were using technology to protect ourselves. But it wasn't. And uh, the terrorists knew exactly where to hit. They took out the communications uh, bases and they um, 
they basically destroyed the whole army infrastructure. And any army units that came then to protect the citizens, it was all individuals who basically put on their uniforms, took their weapons, and went to defend the citizens of our country. And they made it to larger cities close by, uh, one called Ofakim and another called Sterot. Again, they are, you know, 20 miles away. And um, so it, 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 it was clear that something was, ter- something was terribly wrong. Um, and I keep hearing details about the events. Um, horrible, horrible details. One of the individuals, a forensic uh, specialist, it has taken up till now to identify some of the bodies because they were so badly damaged that only teeth or are left. And um, one of the members of this team said that a body would come in and they wouldn't be able to recognize whether it was a man or a woman because they had been so sexually assaulted. Um, apparently one woman's pelvis was so crushed from multiple rapes that her legs were at a strange angle. There were babies beheaded, uh, tiny little bags, you know, that they had to identify. Um, children and parents who were tied together and burned together. Horrible, barbaric events. And when we finally turned the news on after the, the holiday ended, the Sabbath ended, we were shocked to discover what had happened. One of the other things that happened on that Saturday was that my youngest, I have, I have three children, my daughter who is in the States and two sons. And my youngest was with friends in Jerusalem, which is about an hour and a half drive away. And as we were sitting around our Shabbat lunch table, he walked in the door. He does not travel on, on Shabbat. And I did not expect to see him. But he was called up, one of 350,000 men and women who answered the call to immediately go into the reserves and do what it was ever necessary, what was ever, whatever was needed to, to try and right this wrong. Uh, as I said, we, we complacently lived with this violence for years. And I, I think that the events of October 7th were a wake-up call that no matter how we try, how hard we try, we cannot bend their swords into plowsheds and we must defend ourselves and we must destroy Hamas as an entity living on our border. Uh, Our lives have been irreparably changed by the events. Um, I'm not okay, and I don't know when I will be. I remember emailing you um, right after we saw the news here. And again, I'm talking to you from Colorado, from beautiful, safe Colorado in the mountains. And I remember, you know, asking you if you were okay and 
the response that you gave me. And uh, I, I'm trying to deal with what you're dealing with again as a as a mother. Um, tell me how your son, who is called, is is handling what's going on. Um, have you been able to communicate with him? Absolutely. So um, <laughs> there's a phrase in Israel that if your son calls to say, I'm turning off my phone, it is a signal that they are going into Gaza and will not have an ability to contact you. Uh, thankfully, uh, so both my sons are called, were, were deployed. Um, my youngest is uh, most recently out of the army. Uh, he's 24. Um, he is now in a unit with uh, 40 year olds. He says it's very interesting to integrate, you know, his aged individuals with all these other, you know, family men who have come back to uh, their unit. And he is near um, the West Bank city of Janine. I think of Janine as a hornet's nest that thankfully has not yet been kicked open. I don't know if it will. I do know that there is uh, a lot of uh, tension. There are terrorist attempts coming out of the West Bank. And uh, the army is trying to keep a lid on it. So that's where my younger son is. My older son is in the home front command. He has, he's on a base in the city of Akko, which is, uh, if you think of the coast of Israel, it's above Haifa. Uh, it's not too far from his home. So he thankfully is able to get home and help his wife with their three kids, which, you know, is difficult. She, uh, schools had been closed for quite a while, for about two weeks, at least two, three weeks. In and all of then, Israel? Is this in, in, in all of Israel. Israel? Everything closed down for the first few weeks. Everything closed down. Um, I, I would I would guess that I, I wasn't in the States on 9-11, but I'm guessing that it was that same kind of terrible mourning and vulnerability and what's going to happen next and am I safe? And the safe room that we thought was safe was not safe. And the army that we thought would protect us was not there. And you have all these thoughts and feelings and, and rage. How could people do this to other people? Uh, so tell, tell me why, why your safe room wasn't safe. So along the, the border communities, um, these safe rooms are to protect us, but they don't have locks. And so the terrorists that got into the houses of all these different kibbutzim, the kibbutz, these collective communities, were able, in many instances, to open these locked, these safe rooms and pull out and shoot and destroy families. There are cases of, there are cases of, there was one couple with 10 month old twins and they, um, hid their twins and then tried to battle and stave off the terrorists. They were both killed and the twins, thank God, made it out alive. They were found maybe 10, 12 hours later. The, the scope of the catastrophe was not even understood while people were running to protect 
while, while soldiers were running to protect the civilians. Um, so that's why there's this feeling that something, something failed. We failed. We, whoever it was, there's going to be a reckoning. It, it's not going to be now, but there will be. You, you talk about both men and women being called to service. Is, is this, um, what, what are the requirements for able-bodied people in Israel as far as the military so, goes? Right. So, so we actually have a draft. Um, young people who are of the age of 18 are drafted into the army for uh, almost three years, depending on where you end up serving. There is a uh, parallel track where young people can also do what we call national service, which is not military oriented, but helping in communities, um, working in schools, uh, working with um, mentally challenged adults and children, many, many different ways to serve the country. It doesn't have to be in the military. My daughter, when she went in, she was a non-commissioned officer in charge of soldiers' rights. So she would um, visit soldiers' families and help them with extra funding if they needed it. Um, my oldest son, uh, who is, uh, who, he was in a base in the northern city of Sfat working on computers. So there are many different ways to serve. My youngest was uh, our only combatant. <laughs> he, uh, he's a sharpshooter. And uh, whatever that entails when he goes out uh, on on uh, duty. Um, so when all this, you know, you you, you mentioned my my book. Um, my mom has Alzheimer's. She's had Alzheimer's for about thirteen years, and about three years ago, she, we moved her into a uh, facility here in Beersheba, where I live. And I had no time to think about her or what was going on in her facility. Um, but they were under the same uh, constraints as we were with rockets being fired. Thousands of rockets were fired towards Israel. So in, in her house, in her, there's a three-story building where she lives. Um, the workers there are from all different places. So you have foreign workers from uh, Nepal and sometimes India and Thailand. And you have workers who are Israeli who speak Arabic, Russian, Hebrew. So there's a real mix of people who are taking care of, uh, of these, these individuals, the residents in her home. They immediately brought the, the, the people on the third floor down to the second and first floor because it's much safer when you have to deal with rockets. And during the day, they keep them in the main, um, I guess, room, the main room of the building that doesn't have any windows. Mm. So that was how they dealt with it and you know you can find heroes in so many places and i have to hand it to all these staff members who kept their cool and kept taking care of with with love and gentleness the patients and the residents in my mom's home 
Have you seen your mom since October 7th? I have. I have. Uh, I saw her. I, I usually visit on Fridays. My dad um, goes once or twice a week and I, and I have Fridays that I can go see her. Um, and I guess this is a good time to tell you about one Friday where we had, we did three things that to me, um, speak to what memory is and, um, how our minds work and how we are trying to live within this new world that we've entered. So it was the first time my, my youngest was home on leave. He had 24 hours. Uh, I can't imagine the cognitive dissonance that he was experiencing traveling from his base to his lovely, you know, room where he has his own bed. And, uh, you know, we showered him with love and food and, it was uh, uh, because he was going back on a Friday afternoon, I was actually able to bake him cakes and challah, and I sent a whole bunch of stuff with him back on the bus. Um, and it was very hard to say goodbye to him, not knowing what he was doing and where he was going. Uh, so we, we dropped him at the bus stop. And then we drove about... Um, 15, 20 minutes to another small um, uh, city near Beersheba to pay um, a condolence call. Um, in the Jewish tradition, when someone, right after someone is buried, there are seven days of mourning where hopefully the family is together and they can mourn their loved ones. And... Um, this was a delayed morning. Um, the family that we meant that we went to visit, uh, Ilan and Rachel Troen. Uh, my husband knows Ilan from his work at Ben Gurion University of the Negev here in Beersheba. And, um, their daughter and son-in-law were killed on their kibbutz, kibbutz Cholit. They, died protecting their 16-year-old who um, was injured by the bullet that went through his mother and into his abdomen. And he was on his own for about 12 hours before he was rescued. He had his phone on. His grandfather, Ilan, was in touch with him, as were other family members, including medical professionals, to try and help him with his wound. He first hid under their dead bodies. And then he, they helped him figure out to move into the laundry room and cover himself with laundry. The terrorists kept coming back into the house. Uh, they set fire to the house. And when Ilan finally saw his grandson in the hospital, he he couldn't believe it was his grandson. His grandson was black from head to toe with soot from the fire. Uh, so we didn't talk to the grandson, but we did talk to Ilan and Rachel. And uh, we talked about their their husband, uh, their daughter, um, Devora, and her husband, Shlomi Matias. And... Uh, Rachel, I couldn't believe how amazingly strong they were. 
it was a delayed morning because um, the body of Shlomi was found and identified very quickly, but the body of Devorah was misplaced for a while. And they decided that they should be buried together and they should be mourned together. And so it was almost a week after the events of October 7th before they received her body for burial. So this is trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And they were so strong and they were so amazing and um, truly inspirational. Um, and, and Rachel told us about a poem that she has read many times since she received news of her daughter's death that to her exactly described her situation. Uh, a poem by uh, Wyslava Szymborska, who was a Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1996. Um, and I can read it a little bit later for you on. It's called Life While You Wait. Do you want to read it so, now or later? Let me, let me just, yes. Uh, get through, or get through, yes. get, <laughs> so get through the rest of this day. Get through the rest of this day. We dropped our son at the at the bus station. We went to pay this condolence call, and then we went to visit my mom. And so we went to an event of heightened and active memory to a complete 100% non-awareness of these earth-shattering and horrible events. And there was my mom placid, talkative as she likes to be, and oblivious to everything happening around her. Um, you know, and and so you don't talk about what's happening. You, you, you push those emotions away, just as when you're dealing with little kids. Uh, when we've helped take care of our grandchildren over this period of time, we put our phones away, we do not listen to the news, we do not watch the news, and we are the guardians, and we keep that blackness from them. And How that's what we did. The oldest is seven. We have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and an eight-month-old. So it reminds me also that there are peaceful, quiet places in the world, um, and also sometimes in our minds that are not at war which is a nice thing to remember. Um, Did you sing so, when you were, when you were with your mother? I, I know you talked uh, about song a lot. Uh, yes. My mom loves music. Um, I, I actually sing a lot of nursery rhymes with her. Um, British nursery rhymes that she taught me when I was a baby. So those are very ingrained in her memory, and she still remembers some of the words and nods along when she is focused on the music as well. So that's uh, that's a good thing. Sometimes I think it's a good thing not to know what's going on. Right. When you dropped your son at the bus or while he was home for those 24 hours, what did you learn about him? He, uh, he was in such a good place. He is, he just finished his first year, um, in a music college. He's getting a degree in, um, 
music and education. He plays the guitar. He writes songs. He was in a great place. And I saw that this wall had come down and he was stealing himself and pushing his emotions away. Uh, My oldest son said that it's okay. He needs to do that. Um, and my youngest is my most sensitive child, but he cannot be sensitive in this moment. And so I saw that and I worried about it. I worried about the after effects of what this will do, not only to him, but, um, I, I think it is a national trauma just as say, Cambodians experienced in, under the reign of of terror in their country, or uh, Chinese under the reign of terror in their country. There is a national trauma going on in Israel. Everyone is connected with someone who was killed or who was taken or who is in as a soldier right now in Gaza. And it's a very personal war. And there's there's no end date. There's no you're gonna redeploy and go home on this date and you're gonna be done with your with your mission. There's none of that, right? Um I just I wanna say and I don't really wanna get political and I am very focused on what it means to be Israeli at this moment. But Israel is not fighting Pal- Palestinian, the Palestinian people. We are fighting Hamas, who is a genocidal militant terror group that uses Palestinians as human shields because they know our soldiers will not indiscriminately kill civilians. Yeah. We are, I know that the Palestinians are not in a good s- space. I know that. Um, but if you ask Israel, if you ask me if I want to cease fire, I tell you no. Not until we have eradicated Hamas and their deadly tunnels and everything they own that we, we cannot live anymore in complacency, complacency with them on our borders. We cannot. And we are committed to destroying Hamas. Um, physically, I think as an ideology, it is much more difficult. Um, but we can't go back. We cannot go back. And yeah. And so what can you do as a single person, mother of soldiers? What can you do? So I'll tell you what I can do. I can talk to you. I can. <laughs> um so I have, um, even before the war, I had started volunteering um, in a couple places, but I'll, I'll tell you about one of the places that I volunteer, and that is the new local zoo. And uh, it is a, a, a zoo that the animals are specifically um, from the African Syrian rift. So, you know, you're talking lions and and uh, zebras and giraffes and beautiful birds of birds of prey and um, some cheetahs and monkeys and uh, crocodiles. Uh, no, alligators, I think, not crocodiles. <laughs> One or the other. Um, and just as every other institute was affected when the war started, so was the zoo. 
and people were called up and a group of national service um, young people were not allowed. They were told they could not go back into the zoo. So uh, as a volunteer, I stepped up with a friend and instead of working with the animals, I'm uh, part of the, the bird <laughs> contingency. We, I, um, I help uh, feed uh, some birds. Um, I've, uh, I've loved feeding pelicans and cormorants and uh, horned owls and these beautiful um, red buzzards. Just, uh, it, it's amazing to be in cages with them. And it's a zoo that has worked hard to um, take in animals that have not done so well in the wild or in troops. Uh, for example, the cheetah had some sort of limp and was excommunicated. Um, the hippo also that we have, and we're waiting for another hippo. I don't know when that's going to come. But this hippo apparently um, was also ostracized from the rest of the hippos. So it's and and our lions are three siblings that are, are white lions. They could oh. not ever survive in the wild. So um, you know, I, there's a there's a lovely book that um, uh, was written for young young people. Um, I, I uh, the the one and only Ivan. And there's a line in that book that good zoos are how people compensate for their treatment of animals. So I'm, I'm hoping that this is going to be a good zoo. It's, it's not even opened. It was supposed to open, uh, right after uh, the end of October. And that just didn't happen. So, uh, so the war started. There was no one working. Uh, and a friend and I stepped up and we entered the kitchen and we learned how to make <laughs> what, what I lovingly call fish and chicks, uh, for, <laughs> um, you know, we learned that, uh, the male lion has twice as much to eat as the female lion. Some birds need, um, chicken cut into little pieces. Other birds can eat you know, a quarter of a chicken. Some birds like big fish and other birds like small fish. You haven't and had to, you haven't had to chew any of the food, have you? To put it into <laughs> thank some goodness. of the Thank goodness. <laughs> but we're also cutting fruit for the fruit bats and uh, uh, other animals. Um, and uh, so that's what we've done since the war started. Um, at least once a week we go in and we volunteer at the zoo. Wow. And so <laughs> so this is this is your your peaceful place, your place to escape the reality giving, in a way. I am, I am giving to animals that don't ask that need help and don't ask for it, and I am able to give with all my heart, and that's a really good thing. Uh, the the other thing that's happened on a national level is that um, some of the people who were killed and taken hostage were um, Thailand Th uh, people from Thailand who had come to Israel to work. And um, after October 7th, as you can imagine, most of the Thailand Thailandi people wanted to leave Israel. So many, many, many farms are without their workers. And of course, the 
the what we call the Gaza envelope, where this massacre happened on October 7th, is also the breadbasket of Israel. And um, there has been an outpouring of volunteerism among um, people who are able to go and pick avocados or or tomatoes or eggplant or whatever it is uh, and work one day a week or one day in two weeks, just this, this rotational outpouring of volunteerism. And I was very lucky to go um, with three other people um, and we planted strawberry plants um, to help a, uh, a family farm uh, stay on its feet. So that was also very life affirming. Are you seeing the impact of this in food and supplies that you yourself need? To survive? Um, not like in Gaza, but prices are going up. Um, there is not yet a, sort of a shortage of, of anything that I have seen. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how long this is going to last. So it's, it's not clear. At this point, Israel is doing okay. So your older son, you said he's he's near his family. How how are his children dealing with the fact that their dad is, you know, probably going out a lot more than he used to? So many dads are going out a lot more than they used to. Um and a lot of mothers too. Um so they live in an area where there has been one siren and in the neighboring cities, there have been a few, but in their specific city, there have not really been sirens. At some point, I guess about two and a half weeks ago, the, their city decided that they were going back to school and my daughter-in-law had to go back to work. She is a speech therapist and she works with special needs kids. She, um, but she had a dilemma. Her husband's in the army, so he's not with her in the mornings. She has three kids. She has to get to three different places. And the baby's facility does not have a safe room. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, pulling her in three different directions. The oldest usually rides a bus to school. Should he ride the bus? What happens if there's a siren? What happens if rocks are shot towards him? How will he react if he's by himself? You know, he, he travels with his cousin, but, you know, all these questions going through your mind and how do you, how do you figure it out? So they took it step by step. They moved the baby into a different um, facility where the, where there was um, a facility uh, right next door. So if there is a siren, she will be protected. Um but then there was this difficulty in, in getting her to be acclimated to the new facility. She didn't know the people. She'd been with her mom all this time um, and her dad, you know, when he was home. And getting her to a place where she was comfortable was very difficult. And it brought to mind when I was with her 
the fact that there are babies her age in Hamas captivity. Nine year, nine months old, nine months old. And the mother is there too. Uh, but are they together? Is this baby being cared for? Is he getting enough food? You know, the idea that this, the, that my granddaughter had difficulty adjusting to a new place and a new and a friendly, sweet, you know, loving place. I, I can't even imagine what these families are doing and how these children are feeling. Um, there have been two older women who were released. And um, one of the family members of one of the women said, she's with us physically, but her mind is not with us. Mm-hmm. And this was only after, this was after three weeks, I guess, of captivity. So, you know, I can try and start my life and I can try and feel like I'm doing things that are making me feel there's a schedule and I am living. And then it comes right back round. And I am in that emotional morass again, because what was perpetrated against us was so horrific that we are having a hard time processing it and and it's difficult to move forward. And yet you talked about those three unique events that happened on that day between dropping off your son doing the, the, the morning and then visiting your mom. And you talk about how that's linked in your memory somehow. I mean, you, you're never going to forget that day. And in the, in the midst of an ongoing war, you still have to move forward. And this is what you're doing. The laundry has to be done. The dishes have to be washed. I have work to do. So yes, uh, it is it is very difficult to balance uh, all those emotions. I have uh, I have two friends who both have sons in the army and we go out for coffee once a week if we can do it and it gives us a chance to openly talk to each other and tell each other how we're doing and laugh and cry. And uh, they are my anchors at the moment. And your father, how is he coping with everything? So how old is he now? My dad is 85, 85 years young. He is, he's staying close to home. Um, he's not going out very much. Uh, he is, he, he still makes it to the gym twice a week, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> uh, he is with us. Um, Friday nights when we have Shabbat dinner together. And I, I am in contact with him every day. Uh, sometimes I see him, sometimes I don't, but on Friday nights I see him. And uh, he is trying very hard to be creative. He is an artist. Uh, I don't know that he's painted anything recently, but he has created these very interesting large uh, insects <laughs> out of household items trying to keep himself busy so and so in the in the midst of this miriam um are you working on another book are you working on an an annex to this with um with recipes for the animals that you're caring for or (laughs) 
are you do you have enough poems to put out another book of poetry um can you even have time to think creatively about well your po- your poetry you're doing your poetry monthly which is grounding it, i'm it, sure it pushes me to try and create um but it is very hard to be in that creative space even though that is a comfort sometimes yeah yeah so um should i read this poem please yeah okay and let me open it up on just a second Uh, well and while you're doing that uh, for those of you listening we're talking with miriam green author of the lost kitchen a book everyone should read, Reflections and Recipes from an Alzheimer's Caregiver. Um, It's remarkable. You are a talented woman, and the way you are moving forward in the midst of war, right in your front yard, right in your yard, is an inspiration. So I I hope that people will listen to this and, and feel some inspiration from you. Thank you. I, I hope so. Um, my computer is very sluggish today. Okay, so this is a poem again um, by Vishlava Shimborska, and it is called Life While You Wait. And this was the poem that Rachel Troen, who, whose daughter was killed, told us meant so much to her after she found out about her daughter's death. Life While You Wait Performance without rehearsal Body without alterations Head without premeditation I know nothing of the role I play I only know it's mine I can't exchange it I have to guess on the spot just what this play is all about Ill-prepared for the privilege of living, I can barely keep up with the pace that the action demands. I improvise, although I loathe improvisation. I trip at every step over my own ignorance. I can't conceal my hayseed manners. My my instincts are for happy histrionics. Stage fright makes excuses for me, which humiliate me more. Extenuating circumstances strike me as cruel. Words and impulses you can't take back. Stars you'll never get counted. Your character like a raincoat you buttoned on the run. The pitiful results of all this unexpectedness. If only I could just rehearse one Wednesday in advance or repeat a single Thursday that has passed. But here comes Friday with a script I haven't seen. Is it fair, I ask, my voice a little hoarse, since I couldn't even clear my throat off stage. You'd be wrong to think that it's just a slapdash quiz taken in makeshift accommodations. Oh, no. I'm standing on the set and I see how strong it is. The props are surprisingly precise. The machine rotating the stage has been around even longer. The farthest galaxies have been turned on. Oh, no, there's no question. This must be the premiere. And whatever I do will become forever what I've done. Thank you. Miriam, this is our week of Thanksgiving here in the United States. And 
you know, so, sometimes I find it hard to believe that I am so fortunate to have the circumstances of my birth make me lucky, put me in a lucky place. I, uh, this is going to be a hard Thanksgiving because of everything else that I know is going on. And I'm thinking of you and you're, you're one person among so many struggling right now. And um, I want to give thanks that, that you're alive, that your children are alive. Um, what, what else can you tell our listeners today about anything you want to say? Oh, I was buoyed um, by the recent um, demonstration in Washington, D.C., where more than 300,000 people came to support Israel. And um, I know that for Jews around the world, and even in America right now, there are fears that there's a resurgence in anti-Semitism that uh, people are supporting Hamas without thinking about their cruelty. Um, and I am saddened, very saddened by all those, uh, those events. Uh, so this demonstration was a real boost. And uh, I hope that everyone out there who has questions about the conflict that's going on in the Middle East will sincerely look to find the nuances and not just see the black and white, because it is a very nuanced uh, uh, situation. And I think there's a way to come down against evil and stand up against evil and still support the idea of Palestinians um, having a homeland. and. I hope and pray that individuals can see that and that the actions that Israel is committing are not against the Palestinian people. They are against and in order to destroy uh, Hamas, which is a genocidal terrorist organization. Yeah. What can we do when I say we, me, anyone listening to this, what can we do? There are amazing organizations that are supporting the war effort. I can certainly, there are more than 200,000 displaced people within Israel, meaning the people who lived uh, in the Gaza envelope and the people who live up north, on the we didn't even talk about the the border with Lebanon, where there are rockets shooting by, being shot daily by Hamas and Hezbollah, another wonderful uh, terrorist organization. So there are more than two hundred thousand displaced people within Israel. They uh, cannot go back to their homes. They uh, feel homeless and at loose ends. Uh, many people's jobs have ceased to exist or to stop and they, they're not working. Uh, and um, kids who were in school, where do they go to school? There, there are 
um, there, there are kibbutzim. We have a friend down south on a kibbutz near a lot. They have taken in double their population to help one of the, the settlements that was in the, in the Gaza envelope. Um, and there are centers where many of these people say from, uh, Kiryat Shmona, which is the city closest to the northern border with Lebanon. Um, there are two main central areas where a lot of people have, have taken refuge, um, often in hotels. So they don't have access to kitchens. They can't take care of themselves uh, as a family. And they still have to figure out how to get their kids in school, how to keep their family going, their life going. And, and it is very difficult. So, so somebody who wants to help, um, there are many organizations to donate to. I can, uh, I can send you a list that we can post. Please, please. Miriam, I'll be here if you want any any more airtime for whatever good it will do. Um, I too pray that people will educate themselves, and we all want this to be over. The whole world, I believe, wants this to be over, and wants a resolution that's good for all innocents, all the innocent people, right? Because there are so many. And the chant that is bring them home. Let those people go. Let yeah. them go. They, it's horrible. And it's horrible to think about where they are and what the conditions in which they are staying. Um, yeah. It's yeah. just horrible. So bring them home. That is what we, we have been saying. Okay. Um, listeners out there, this is my Israeli friend, Miriam Green. I, I wish I could wiggle my nose and bring your whole family right here to the safety of my home. Uh, and again, I, I I feel so thankful, and yet I also feel guilt with that thank, thankfulness because why, you know, why should I be so lucky? I, I honestly feel that. Um, bye. Miriam's book, The Lost Kitchen. <laughs> really, this is amazing. If you know anything about Alzheimer's or you know anyone with Alzheimer's, this will help you. Miriam, you'll send me some links. Well, and I will post this on my website at letvillaurel.com. And please stay in touch. And I will continue to pray for you and yours and, and all the people of Israel and all the innocents caught up in this horrible, horrible war. Thank you. My best to you and your family. Give your husband and your grandchildren hugs and we'll be in touch, okay? Thank you, Laurel. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, Mary.